place of, of operation, to live life in ministry right here in this place called uh, Capernaum. There is another photo I want to show you, and it's of the uh, Via Maris, again in our day with paved roads and automobiles, but it existed back then in first century Palestine. And this Via Maris means the international highway. And in Capernaum, this place that Jesus chose, there, were, there was traffic, there was trade, there were taxes, imports, and exports. The, the, the Israel was not an independent nation. We love our freedom and our independence, right? As Americans, it's something that we, we take pride in. But Israel did not know that. They had been invaded many times over. Their rebellious and wicked hearts had turned away from God. Invasions had occurred. And here in the first century, Rome occupied them. And there were taxes, taxes that were paid uh, to the Roman Empire. So in this area, you'll see there was, you can just look at it and tell that it was agriculturally rich. So there were farmers. And of course, the Sea of Galilee, there were, was the trade of fishing with lots of fishermen. So you have religious Jews, you have Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers were there to protect the tax system, to particularly protect the tax collectors, and to feed the war machine of the Roman Empire. So religious Jews, Roman soldiers, farmers, fishermen, and tax collectors all resided here, this place that Jesus chose. Taxes were paid. Uh, Everybody has to pay taxes, right? And taxes can... It's a have to and it's a hard to. And we, of course, try to reform tax laws and we complain about it. But we all have to pay taxes. But think about us and what we enjoy in our day, all of us, to some extent. When we pay taxes, we sort of know where they're going. If you ask questions, you can find out more about where your tax dollars are going. And we're in different tax brackets and have different opinions and values related to our taxes. But for the most part, we know that the idea is that taxes are placed upon us Part of our income is taken in order to improve our roads, our bridges, our schools, our parks, our playgrounds, our potholes, and that can be a good thing for us. But can you imagine living in a land where you're occupied, where you don't have a vote or voice in your tax dollars? In fact, you know that your tax dollars are going to increase the wealth of the Roman Empire. And that is where we are when we come today to see Jesus Call a man named Matthew. We'll be in Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13 if you want to turn, but we're going to take it bit by bit, line by line, as we look at this today about Jesus being a friend. As he calls Matthew, he develops a reputation. They tag him with a title. He had many titles, but they tag him with the title, Friend of Sinners, which, let me be clear, was not intended as a compliment. So Matthew 9, verses 9. Let me, before we go there, let me give you the three scenes. We're going to have three scenes from Matthew 9 as we look at Jesus, the friend of sinners. If you're here for the first time, haven't been able to podcast, we're in a series called A Doubter's Guide to Jesus. We've been looking at Jesus. Week 1, it was Jesus as teacher, Matthew 7. Week 2, Jesus as healer, Matthew 8. Last week, Jesus as judge, Matthew 23. And today, uh, Jesus, friend of sinners, Matthew chapter 9. So here's the three scenes that we'll look at today. We'll look at the invitation. We'll look at the meal. We'll look at the question. The invitation, you note takers are loving me right now. The invitation is Matthew 9, 9. The, the meal is Matthew 9, 10. And the question is actually a question about the meal and the invitation. And that's Matthew 9, 11. And so you'll get your money's worth today. We'll throw an addendum on and that'll be Matthew uh, 9, 12 to 13. That's what we're looking at. So where are we going to start? Talk to me. You'll get out of here on time. The invitation. I didn't say early. I said on time. 
All right, here's the invitation. It comes to us in Matthew 9, 9a. Jesus says this, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. A Jewish rabbi looks at a tax collector, someone who was not loved and accepted by his people. So you get that if you're collecting taxes, you're a Jewish person, but you're a sellout. You're a sellout because you've chosen as your job to take money from your people, uh, to give it to the Romans, and to, in some ways, line your pockets. Could you imagine? A total sellout, and you're at a tax booth with lots of people traffic, lots of pedestrian traffic, and you're out there, and this Jewish rabbi comes to this tax collector promoting Roman oppression, and he says to him, follow me. Before we appreciate and fixate, if you will, on who Jesus invited to follow him. Let's focus on the fact, and we miss this, uh, we don't get it when we, uh, you know, a cursory reading of the story, but let's focus first on the fact that Jesus invited. There are three um, players in this, if you will. You'll recognize uh, the top one here, but there's a rabbi, there's the Talmud and the Talmudim, and this was the group of students who uh, gained acceptance into the school. And their goal was to become rabbi, to become a rabbi. These were Jewish men who were committed to religious devotion, to understanding the promises of God and seeing those promises of God rightly understood, correctly divided, and properly applied to where they lived. And so this was people of zeal, people of fervency, people of deep devotion and commitment. If you're living your life half-heartedly and apathetically, you'll have to stretch to understand this. But these were people, man, they were all in. They, they Well, they wanted to be in. Uh, to become a teacher, you got to be a student. The best teachers are currently good students and ongoing students. When a man or woman ceases to learn, they cease to live. That was one of the sayings back then. And these, uh, these Talmud, the individual Prospective students wanted to be a part of the Talmud and they wanted one day to become such a good student that they would be themselves a rabbi. Most people were not rabbis. That'd probably be bad for the economy. That'd be like everybody being a pastor, right? Like who would pay the pastor? That's just bad news. But most people would not be rabbis and they would, they would fall back on a trade that they've learned from their, their parents, particularly their dad. They would become a whatever. But there were men who wanted to be they wanted to be rabbi. They wanted to become the best student, but they had to they had to get in. They had to get in. You see, rabbis didn't walk around inviting people just to follow them. You had to get in the school. There was an application process. It was very painstaking to be able to get into. Uh, we know if you follow the news a, a little bit over the last few weeks, we know that there's a scandal related to college admissions in America. Some famous celebrities, uh, some other people being accused of this, but apparently some people have uh, fraudulated the system. They've, they've gone past, they've bypassed uh, their children's uh, education or the requirements or the standards, and they've made things up or offered money, big money, to get their kids in a certain school. Could you imagine a parent having so much pride in their kids, they want them in the best schools? We couldn't imagine that in our day, right? Uh, no, for real, And they uh, offered big bucks to do this. Uh, at USC and some other prestigious schools. My wife grew up in a UCLA family. They didn't like USC. They referred to USC as the University of Spoiled Children. So they're probably glorying a little bit in this story. But USC and other schools 
have accepted students who weren't qualified, which means the bummer about this is there are students who probably, well, they were qualified, but they weren't allowed entry because others got in by this means of treachery. It's a get in, can I get in, can I get in? And rabbis of the day, it was known in first century Palestine in the Mediterranean world that rabbis, they would have questions, even pop quizzes. How many people like pop quizzes? But they would ask potential, they would ask the Talmud, potential uh, students, potential rabbis, they would ask them uh, to recite an entire book of the Old Testament. Now, what did they teach? Just to be clear, they taught the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they taught the prophets, what we call today both the minor and major prophets. And they would question them. How many times is the name of the Lord used in Leviticus 11? Quote the entire book of, and these brilliant young men in training were, they desired to get the answer right, to learn so that they would be accepted. So back to it. To be a rabbi, you were identified. In fact, if your student group was was brilliant and elitist in some way, you would be all the more respected and admired. Your identification was with your pupils. Anybody in the room today, like your job is really important to you and what you do and the success of what you do is kind of tied to who you are and those results, those numbers, whatever they may be, the sales report, whatever, it reflects kind of who you are. And rabbis, though religious men, they were you know, living in many ways by the lure of the crowd and to be respected and to be admired. And they would not. A rabbi would not, know, never walk around just inviting people. Because that's to humble themselves. That's to stoop low. That's to, that's to extend and to reach, uh, and to risk, rather, rejection. Isn't it true? Every time you reach out, you risk rejection. Every time you go in looking for a job, every time you ask someone out on a date, every time you try something new, every time you tell someone about a dream that you have, what you want to see God do in your life, you risk being rejected. And rabbis, with all the spiritual fervor and the accordant pride, they did not want to risk that. It was, you guys work hard to get in. We're not going to humble ourselves, initiate, and stoop low. But this rabbi, this homeless rabbi, was different than any other rabbi of the day. And we notice in part of the invitation, this scene one in Matthew 9, 9b, here is this response that is now famous. And he rose and followed him. Don't underestimate that. He rose. He followed him. Think about it. Matthew could have been known today as a failure, as an embarrassment, as a sellout. But he's known as a follower of Jesus. He's known as a follower of Jesus who wrote the first book, first letter of the New Testament, the first account of the life of Jesus. This is that Matthew. He stood and he said, I'm going to follow you. Now, following back then in the Gospels, now it was very, very, it was a very physical following. They, they left, they left home. They left house, they left career, they left so that they could physically follow them. This was before uh, podcast, right? So they had to go where Jesus went. There was no blog or podcast or printing press. They physically followed, and that's what Matthew, that's what he did. To follow Jesus today, I'll say this, to follow Jesus, there are times when God will whisper to you to rise up and to follow Him, and you'll have to cancel your plan.
You see, you don't follow Him to get where you want to go. You follow Him to where He wants you to go. And where, where, where does He want you to go? Make it personal. Where does He want you to go? Some of you, honestly, I said this at the 9.30, say it to you. I feel a sense of obligation to say this. But some of you, you could be in your Matthew moment right now. And are you willing with open hands to listen to Him? But you need to be willing to cancel your plans because following Jesus is following Him not where you want to go, but where He wants you to go. And by the way, if that's your idea of Christianity, if that's been your spiritual journey so far of your tacking Jesus onto your life and asking Him to follow you where you want to go, how's that working for you? You know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And Jesus says, I want you to follow me. And it's funny how something so simple, we mistake that. We want to live our best life now. We want to mold and shape and twist God into the God that we want. And we have these dreams and these plans. And I want to ask you, are you willing to rise up to follow Him? Are you willing to cancel the plans that you have? I have a friend. He's lowered his guard. Talked to me about his story, his journey. And years ago, he told me, as he pounded his fist on a table, he said, I, I am not talking to my dad ever again. It's a vow he made. He left us. He put us in financial straits. Wrecked us. I won't forgive him, and I won't ever speak to him again. And God began to whisper to him to cancel those plans. I was at a civic meeting year, year and a half ago, and I was at a table with nobody that I knew. And I like to meet people and hear people's stories. And I was sitting next to a man probably in his uh, early 70s who was telling me about the last uh, decade of his life. He retired early. He retired early. By the way, there's no Greek word in the New Testament for retirement. In case you know, there's one for death, but not retirement. Some of you just throwing that out there. And this man retired, but he's come in and out of retirement four times. And years ago, when he retired the first time, a nonprofit called him, a great leader, a man that can just, he just has the spiritual gift of leadership. He can align resources and people toward goals and objectives and keeping the big picture in mind, making sure the detailed people handle the detailed people, the details very well. And, and this nonprofit called him and said, we're in crisis, we're in trouble, can you help us? And so he came out of retirement and helped with this nonprofit and pointed them in the right direction. Uh, months after that, another company, a nonprofit called them and said, hey, we're in trouble. Can you walk with us through the season? Can you help us like you help them? We need this. Like it's, it's make or break, sink or swim. And this man I sat next to, he jumped in and he helped this company. I know a little bit about both stories. I was, uh, thought it was so cool to be able to meet him and talk to him. Are you open? Are you open? What I was listening to that day was a 70-something-year-old man tell me that there ought to be, when you get in your 60s, there ought to be something much more satisfying, some question greater than what am I going to have for lunch today? And no matter your age, if you're 65 or so, I don't know how long you have, but don't stop living and don't stop dreaming and don't think, if you're spiritually attuned, that God's not going to whisper to you, change your plans. I've got more for you. And are you willing, are you willing to follow him? Frederick Bruner says this, Jesus' first ministers were the 12 disciples. There is no evidence that Jesus chose them because they are brighter or nicer people. 
Their sole qualification seems to have been their initial willingness to rise to their feet when Jesus said, follow me. Can we just let that sit for a second? Scene one, the invitation. Scene two is the meal. Matthew 9, 10 says this. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, let me stop quickly. This is, Matt, I love the guy's swag. Matthew is throwing himself a going away party. Isn't that great? Like if they, somebody else doesn't throw you a party, just throw it yourself. And that's what Matthew's doing. Like, man, I'm leaving everything. So we're gonna have a party. Uh, it's my going away party. Peace out. Y'all come to my party. It's about, all about me. And um, that's awesome. So that's kind of what's going on here. And as Jesus reclined at the table, I'm gonna read it again because I offered commentary. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So here we see the meal. Meals are really important. How many of you think meals are really important? A couple of jokes I could insert here, but we like food, right? I remember a couple of decades ago, I was reading a commentary of like, is America ready for a network on television totally devoted to food? Like nobody's going to watch that. Like we eat food, but no one's going to sit around and watch a whole network on food, like sports, you know, weather. Yeah, but food and some of the best shows on TV are on the food network. Food's a, it's a big deal. And there's some differences though in our culture and theirs. It was so important in first century Palestine. Anybody remember Revelation 3 that says, behold, I stand at the door, knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will what? I will come in to him and I'll, I love this. The King James says, I will sup with him. I'll come in and sup with him. We would say in the South, have supper with him. My wife's from California. She didn't know what supper is until she moved here. But I will come in and I will have supper. We will, when you, when you have a meal with someone, particularly then, you're identifying with them. And that's what's happened here. An author named John Dixon, he's an Australian. He says this. My introduction of faith came not through family tradition or religious schooling, but through the irresistible power of friendship and good food. Our years uh, in Miami, I know you've heard me, some of you have heard me talk about this before, but it was eight years of my life in ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ. It was a time when, um, when I met Susan and married her and moved her down as a place where we had our first kids. So we were newlyweds, had our first kid. And there was a, a family there that just was dear to us from the very beginning. In fact, after Hurricane Andrew, anybody remember Andrew? It was like the storm, the worst hurricane, Category 5, worst hurricane in modern American recorded history uh, before Katrina hit uh, the landmass known as Mississippi and other places. But Andrew came, and I remember visiting with this man, Steve. And he walked me past this beautiful home. And he said, it was on 1510 Delgado Avenue, and he said, God is giving us this house. It was related to the storm, and it became affordable through a variety of reasons and insurance and really a miracle. And he said, we want this home to be used for kingdom purposes. And for years, we got to be a part of that. 
And there were students, black students, and occasionally some white students, but Hispanic students, and Dominican, and Haitian, and Cuban, and Puerto Rican. And there were people that we met there that were literally international fashion models, and a football player named Dwayne Johnson that came, went on to become a wrestler known as The Rock. And so the DeBartolomeo's home was opened, and we, we made friends with people, and we broke bread, and they were always committed to having people over and cooking and sharing the Jesus story. Every time the doors opened, they wanted people to hear about Jesus. And they were as artful as anybody we've ever seen. And they were okay. Some of us in Christian ministry, listen to me, young people, they weren't patient. Well, we're not patient, rather, for fruit. Uh, we watched them and realized they never counted heads. They always wanted to hear stories. They always wanted to know people's name and get, you know, invite them to their turf and learn their language and speak into them to break bread and to sup with them. And through the years we watched, we were part of it, but we got to see people come in those doors. And I know there were neighbors looking over there going, what, what are you doing with them? And that's what's happening in this story. Jesus, what are you? why would you break bread? Why would you have a meal with them? At the DeBartolabin's home, we saw people, some who made the headlines, some who had flamed out in the press, their mistakes, uh, some of you think you want to grow up and be famous, you probably don't. Can you imagine your mistakes, your worst moments play out in the public arena for spectacle? And we noticed, we knew people coming in and out of those doors for meals to sit down, to connect their story with the Jesus story. What are you doing with them? There were cons, ex-cons and current cons, and one athlete that had been kicked off the, the U, the University of Miami football team, because of a string of petty thefts, of breaking and entering, and his story played out in the news. But there was a place for them, a place for him at the table. What are you doing with them? And here Jesus, He doesn't want us to miss it. And I don't want you to miss it today. Who can come to the table? We can't be fuzzy about this because the church has been messing up decade after decade. So let me preach it today. Who's welcome at the table? Any guesses? Everyone. Everyone. Everyone is welcome. In fact, Jesus said many times over, if anyone. Now we see in this story that he's calling out specific people to be his followers, but anyone is welcome at the table. And here's what I want to say. We think that you can come to the table when you get cleaned up. And Jesus teaches us, you can come to the table while you are messed up. That is the gospel story. You see, Jesus, through his life, the beauty of his life, he turned this compliment that was an insult into the greatest compliment, to be a friend of sinners. There's no application process. And everybody, in fact, Anyone is welcome to the table. You ever seen those commercials, the car dealership commercials? I want to be careful because some of you could be in the room. But those local car dealerships, they just yell at you and they say, hey, anybody can come here and buy a car. But they have the small print. And what does the small print say? Yeah, it, WAC with approved credit. With approved, so, not, so honestly, not anybody can come there and buy a car. Like you have to have, you have to be approved. You have to be pre-approved before you get the car. But don't mess up the gospel story. You can come to the table, not when you clean yourself up, but while you're messed up. So let me ask you today, who needs that? And how messy are our tables? 
I would say they're too pretty and pristine and neat and tidy. And that sort of religion is a stench to God. And so is your door open? Is your heart open? To follow Jesus is to alter. It's to cancel your plans. And it'll affect... Listen to me, young people. We've got some students and teenagers in the room. Don't use this to go party and live dumb and hang out with people that are bringing you down. That's not this story. But don't miss the story that anybody is welcome. The invitation, scene one, scene two, the meal, and then scene three is here. It's the question. It's a question related to the meal. Oh yeah, let me ask you this. Do you think this is accidental when a Jewish rabbi invites a tax collector under the realm of Roman oppression? Do you think it's accidental or is he sending a signal? This is a signal Jesus sends that echoes through the centuries for us to be people who invite. Do you know, and don't let this sound like church promotion Sunday or anything, but do you know that you're entering a high and holy week where most people in America, particularly Mississippi, will come to church if they're invited? Who can you invite? Who can you make room for? So the third scene, I want to get there. It, it is the question, Matthew 9, 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, here we go, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why this? Why is he doing this? Now, I've explained to you tax collectors, sinners, uh, scholars see this differently. Some see this as sinners, as like the juicy sins. It's like the prostitutes, uh, the drunkards, the, the, the thieves, the burglars, the you know, the adulterers, it's, it's that, and, and I think that it is. But there's also some who study this story and they say that it's really the people who are uh, like the tax collectors. They're doing business with people they shouldn't be. They're violating laws of cleanliness. So tr- you have to travel back some 2,000 years and travel some almost 6,000 miles to appreciate this. But the meal was to identify with somebody. And meals were intimate and closer than they are in our day. In fact, when you go out to dinner or have someone over or go to someone's house, every individual has their own plate, right? Nod your head if that's how you eat. Like, I come to your house, I got you know, you, your plate, my plate. If there's options, you get to choose. Buffets, you get to choose what you want on your plate, but you have your own plate. It's a wonderful boundary. And you've got your plate and you can eat off of your plate. It's your plate. Uh, the closest, but now back up, 6,000 miles away, 2,000 years ago, there was a plate. And most of the meals, that's why washing the hands and cleanliness really mattered, but most of the meals were one big plate, hands are going in it. Now, the closest we get to that is you know, when you go out to a nice restaurant and they ask you for dessert and say you're with four people, it's you and three others, four people, and first thing you do is decline dessert because you want to act healthy and disciplined and all. And then someone goes, I'll take the fudge brownie a la mode with the blum, 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 caramel, such and such. And then all of a sudden, man, four plates, four spoons, right? And then you're all going in, which when we do that, like Susan loses every time because I just dominate the dessert. But like, that's the closest we get to everybody going in. But then that was like what people did. So could you imagine these tax collectors and sinners and these very religious people with their cleanliness and their rituals of washing and repetitive washing, et cetera, et cetera. They see Jesus breaking bread, sharing a meal, hands going in together. Wasn't accidental. He's sending a signal. And will the church, will you and I, will we pick up on this all these centuries later? 
Here's um, an addendum. It's verses 12 and 13, and it's super important. But when he heard it, notice the, the highlights that I did here, the word no and not. There's three nots. But when he heard it, in other words, Jesus heard them ask the question about why, do the, why does he hang out with them? He says this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I love this, by the way. Let me. He's about to drop Hosea 6 6 on them. And Jesus knew that they knew the prophets. He knew they knew what the verse said. But yet he says, You can memor- you got it memorized. Like, they're, like there's religious people, they know the Bible, but they're mean. Right? Like they, they can quote chapter and verse, but you just don't want to be around them. And when they invite people to Easter, nobody comes. Right? Because they're mean. They're not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So he's saying, go and learn. Like, that's a different kind of learn because they knew the verse. So we're not asking today if you know the verse. Never asking if you know the verse. I mean, I want you to know the verses. Bible memorization has been very important to me for 35 years. But go and learn. Like, I want you to know what this means. What does Hosea 6 6 mean? I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you don't know that you need Him, you're going to miss Him. If you deny or minimize, if you're self-righteous and judgmental, you're going to miss Jesus. You got your version of Jesus, but not Jesus. So it's this. Sick, not healthy. Mercy, not sacrifice. Sinner, not righteous. Notice it was a Pharisee. Now, we come down hard on the Pharisees. I want to I do that again quickly and then come back to the fact that he's actually inviting the Pharisees to the table. If you're a Pharisee, you're invited to the table. But the Pharisees were the clean-living, law-abiding, nice-looking, rule-following, pious-sounding people. And we can be that way, right? I'm going to say what makes me look good Later, and we're in chapter 9, but Matthew 23, Jesus issues seven woes to the people. Woe, 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 woe. Seven woes where we miss it. Here's two ways that he talked about. These are people that put the outside over the inside and rules over relationship. Keep that up. You care more about what other people think of you and how you sound. And you wallpaper your spirituality so people think you're doing better than you are. It's pious-sounding language. Anybody do that? Anybody been turned off by someone's pious-sounding language? One of my favorite stories is a little boy. His mom was inside the house and didn't know it, but the pastor was visiting them. And the little boy runs in with a rat in his hand. He goes, Mama, 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 I found this, this rat outside. I threw a stone at it, and it just laid there. And then I picked up the rat and I threw it as hard as I could against the wall. And I went and got it and I picked it up again. I threw it as hard as I could against the wall. And then he, he notices the pastor was at the house. And he looked over at his mom. And if looks could kill, he'd be a dead kid. And while holding the dead rat, he said very piously, and then the dear Lord called him home. <laughs> we can be that way. We can wrap our language So much so that we're changing the events of the story because we're mindful of who's in the room. That's very frustrating and it's very fatiguing if you choose to live that way. And look, I've been there. It's no way 
It's not the Jesus way. So outside over inside and rules over relationships. There was a television commercial years ago. A pharmaceutical company was selling a prospective drug to patients who had hepatitis C. And as I understand it, Hep C is a disease, it's a condition that you don't, it doesn't manifest itself from the outside, but it happens and it gets you um, inside. It affects you inside, but you can't see it. And in this commercial, they showed a man's face and it was more and more, it was marred and disfigured. And the caption, this is, is brutal, but the caption said, if this happened, if Hep C happened to your face and not your liver, would you do something about it? 1-800, 1-800, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I remember I saw that, I'm like, that's effective. Like, that's really effective. In other words, if, if this was affecting your outside where people would notice, you'd do something about it. But something that's getting you and eating you from the inside and killing you slowly from the inside, ah, we'll put that off. And we can't live that way. Like, sin is serious. And if you think you're righteous and, you know, you, you think it's sacrifice and all these spiritual exploits and pious language that you're among the righteous and you're good and other people are bad, you're missing Jesus. And someone said this is, the church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. And I would say, can we live a little more like that? Can we? Can we risk, a rabbi risk rejection by extending himself and stooping down and reaching out to invite people to follow him? Can we risk to be vulnerable? To say, I'm not doing good. My heart is sick and something is getting me from the inside and I need help. Lastly, they put rules over relationship. When I got married those 23 years ago, I stood at an altar at a Lutheran church in Palos Verdes, California, and I, I, I followed what the preacher said. I, I do it now a bunch of times. I'm the preacher now, but I, I listened to the preacher. I repeated his words. They were, for the most part, traditional vows. And I knew then, on January 11th, 1997, I knew that I was making promises. I knew that I would have to live by some rules. I would have to love her and cherish her and honor her and protect her. I'd have to provide for her, you know, be with her, stay with her no matter what, sickness and health, richer, poorer, et cetera, et cetera. I'd have to do those things. I understand those rules, but then we, you know, we got married and I realized there are more rules. And I got to like, you know, keep my closet clean. I mean, it's my closet. Keep the closet clean and put the... Put the toothpaste, put the top back on the toothpaste and don't be sarcastic or mean to her before 8 a.m. in the morning, right? And if she comes to me for an opinion on two dresses that look identical to the untrained male eye, I need to have a quick, accurate opinion about what she asked. And I don't need to have too much back hair. There are other rules. <laughs> other rules, that's, that's a tougher one. But like, I just there are other rules that... I've learned that I have to live by. But here's the truth. And we're not perfect. Almost, but not perfect. We're not perfect. Listen to me. These aren't cumbersome rules. Because I'm passionately in love with her. And it is actually satisfying to do the things that she wants. Because I love her. I'm not going to look at her now. But I love her. You could say amen. Act like this is true, right? But look, you get, you get the relationship right, the rules don't matter. 
And here's what Jesus is doing in me, and I'm, I stumble, but I'm telling you, whether it's coming to church on Master's Sunday when the power is out and the branch is over the road, like, I don't have to, I get to. And there's a bunch of things that, I, that it's moved from the I have to do this to I get to do this. And that's what a relationship will do. That's what love will do. And you know what? It's powerful. And it's good. And it's greater than anything. So who's the sinner? Especially the balcony people. Say it with me. Who's the friend? Jesus. Let's don't forget it. So would you stand? I want to ask you this. Could you be in a Matthew moment now? If you are, you're going to be anxious and nervous because you're human. And I've had a handful of Matthew moments. I'm kind of getting old, so I've probably had... 15 to 20 of them in my life or more. And I did not want to rise up. I wanted to stay where I was because uh, Jesus changes things. So would you bow? Would you, I mean, we have a few moments, but would you be willing today to be prayed for or to come to the altar? Or even we'll give you an out here. Even to pray with someone. If you're standing next to someone that you love, that you're committed to, um, would you be willing to tell them, just pray for me? You may want to say, i got a decision. or I just want to be more spiritually attuned to this call of Jesus on my life. Don't let the nervousness, don't let the anxiety stop you from rising up and following Him. Would you pray for us? Would you pray for our church to go grow deeper and to be people who follow Jesus, willing to risk more, willing to love more, willing to be messier, Willing to invite people around the table with less judgment. Because you don't have to go get cleaned up. He wants you while you're messed up. Father, would you be honored in this time as we all stand and we sing? Lord, as we pray, I pray that you give some the courage to come and bend down on knee here to seek you. Lord, it's not prayers of eloquence or intelligence. It's prayers that are heartfelt. Hear our heart in this moment as we call out to You and we sing about resurrecting. God, I take great delight in what's ahead this week. The opportunity that hundreds of people in this room have to invite people to worship You on Good Friday and Easter. To know that the spiritual openness is so abundant now. And this Jesus, this historical figure that's on the cover of every major magazine this week and special television shows is a Savior and friend of sinners. Be honored in this time in Jesus. You come today if we can pray for you or you can kneel in prayer.